Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me coming to you nearly live on digital tape from Brooklyn. Um, as I said, for several months right now, I, I hope everyone is, is safe and well. Uh, I have to reiterate that this week um, because of the events of the last week. I talked a bit about what's going on with the George Floyd protests and the way social media is covering uh, the unrest with Charlie Warzel earlier this week. That's a very good conversation. Um, I direct you to that conversation if you want to hear us talking about the way media is handling this particular time in American and American life, I guess. And Charlie actually wrote a very good piece that's kind of a, a more polished version of our conversation, which you can find in the New York Times. The conversations you're going to hear now are from two people who are running businesses directly affected by the pandemic, which has taken a backseat um, for obvious reasons to our conversation, but is not going away. Both of them have businesses that are really, really affected by the pandemic. Patty Cosgrave runs the Web Summit. It's a series of really big um, tech conferences uh, in Lisbon and Toronto and Hong Kong. The Toronto one is called uh, Collision. Um, was supposed to bring tens of thousands of people into Toronto to talk about tech. That's not happening, but they're still holding the conference. They're going to try to do it digitally. Um, there are a lot of media companies that have a, a big conference business. Um, I work on one. Uh, and so we're all trying to figure out how that's going to work over the next year or so. So I think this will be relevant for quite some time. And then Rafat Ali is someone who's been on Recode Media in the past. Um, he now runs a business called Skift, which covers the travel industry. Again, a huge impact from the pandemic. All the people who were who were paying attention to Rafat and his very good business, uh, his very good uh, publication, have real struggles right now. And so he's had to rethink how that business is going to run. He's making some drastic changes to the way that runs. Um, that's also a good conversation. So let's get to that first conversation with Patty Cosgrave from Web Summit. Hi, Patty. How are you? Great. Very well, and you? I'm well. I'm in Brooklyn. You're in Dublin. Thank you for making time. I've talked to a bunch of people who've had to radically change their business over the last couple of months because of the pandemic, and you're kind of at the top of the list in terms of a business that pretty much cannot exist in current times. And I want to talk to you about how you're you're adapting and, and how you're thinking about the future. But we should set up sort of what you do for a living. Um, I think of you as the guy from the Web Summit, which I used to think of as a Dublin thing, and now it's a Lisbon thing. But you have giant tech conferences around the world. Collision, the one that's coming up, was supposed to be in Toronto in, in real life in, in, uh, at the end of June. You also do events in Hong Kong. I've done events with you in New York, all over the world. It's a tech conference business, I guess is the short way of, of putting it. How's that for an intro? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a ticket salesman, and we had a, we had a kind of crazy notion 10 years ago that um, we could build a software business that created tech conferences and slowly elbow into a hyper-competitive space dominated by the likes of Recode and TechCrunch and South by Southwest from no man's land in uh, the periphery of Europe in Ireland. Uh, and over and it, worked, it worked really well. Yeah, I mean, it worked really well. I mean, when Pixar told the world they were going to use computers and software to create amazing cartoons, people just thought that was ridiculous. Uh, and in the end, it turned out to be right. And a lot of the time in 2013, 2014, when people started wondering why we were hiring all these engineers and physicists, and we told them, they kind of laughed and thought this was ridiculous. And, and you know, eventually, Web Summit has grown to become one of the, you know, the larger tech conferences in the world and collision in, in North America now in Toronto is, you know, it's relatively big, 25, 30,000 people. So it's getting... Yeah, so let's, let's go over numbers. So how many folks last year came to your events? Just want to give people a sense of scale. Oh, far in excess of 100,000 from pretty much every country in, in, in the world. That's spread out over two, two and a half conferences, right? That's the, yeah, the that's one right. in, in Toronto, the one in, in Lisbon, and then the Hong Kong event. Yeah, so maybe maybe 130,000 uh, people, 70,000 to the one in Lisbon. And it really gathers probably the largest group of startups and investors from all over the world. And that's what it's become, a kind of mecca for tech. And the business model is there's some sponsorship. I think the municipalities kick in, and but you're selling tickets to these things and they're, they're not cheap, 
or at least they have not been cheap in the past, right? What was an average ticket price? Tickets range. The cheap tickets are kind of 500, 600 bucks. There's a ticket price around 5,000 and then uh, another at five, about $25,000 uh, or euros. So for some people that want to get access to the speaker room, that's what they're prepared to pay. But even for a lot of the speakers, the real magic is happening out on the floor across all of these halls where there literally are thousands of startups, some of whom are going to become the next unicorns or decacorns. So I haven't been to one of your events in a while, but the last time I did, you were still in Dublin. But they're huge. They're massive events. I mean, again, we've put on the Code Conference and the, the D Conference for a long time, and that's a big event, but that's like 700 people, maybe total attendance. Uh, this is thousands of people jammed into different rooms, overflowing out of hotels, clogging the cities. The operations of these things are, are incredibly difficult to put together. You guys are good at it. So you're planning to do this in Toronto. When do you start thinking, oh, maybe we have to rethink what's going to happen in June of this year? When does that start coming across your your desk? Is that January, February? Yeah, it was the very start of January. I've I've lots of lots of my family for whatever reason are medical professors mostly in the United States. Um I mean they're not they don't specialize in respiratory uh, viruses, but close enough and we had been following it from early January, around, I think January 6th or 7th, we entered a kind of what's called continuity phase uh, for the company. That's very early. Can I just back up? Because that's earlier than just about most of the world, except for people who were sort of in Asia and focused on Hong Kong were thinking about that stuff. Is that because you've got exposure to Asia through your business or just yeah, well, because we, you're, we, we, yeah, you're I mean, tied in? It, in many ways, it was a fluke. We also had a business, uh, uh, the largest maybe tech conference in Asia, which uh, takes place in Hong Kong. So we, we, because of the scale of these events and the people that they bring together, we work closely with all the municipalities or the cities or the national governments. And Hong Kong had been keeping us quite aware of what was happening and prepared. And we made a, a, an unusual decision in Ireland at the time, around March 3rd, we shut our offices completely and went fully remote, which was the first of any company in Ireland. And we were lambasted, as people tend to be, on social media for doing nothing but a publicity stunt. And two weeks later, three weeks later, everybody realized it was probably something many other companies should have considered. We made the decision in early March as well to postpone you know, before South by decided to postpone their event in the middle of March, we'd already decided that the event at the end of June in Toronto couldn't take place simply on the basis that we just we thought this virus was really going to put the world on pause for a prolonged period of time. I want to I want to just expand this timeline a little bit, because I remember very clearly like think, you know, Vox was going to do something at South by, I, I was supposed to go there. I was, I had held off, I think, buying my ticket for a while. And we got into March and became increasingly clear that it wasn't going to happen, but no one was, no one was saying that. Um, I was still talking to people who were planning on meeting me there. And I can imagine again on, on the South by, South by Southwest organizers uh, side, the reluctance to shut down their business, basically, you know, when, if they don't run in March, they have no business. So you guys are thinking about this in January, in February, saying we've got a giant, you know, I'm assuming a, a significant portion of your business. I'm assuming it's difficult to go through that. And there's a there's a, uh, a desire to sort of kick it the can down the road and say, come on, maybe we can make this work a couple months from now. Maybe it'll get better. Well, in our in our situation, we're perhaps, well, as far as I know, we're the only large conference or trade show organizer in the world that builds software. So this goes back to the very first events we ever organized where, you know, software, what I would call software played an important role. So making the decision to go fully online, well, we'd already spent years building the platform that already enables people to network virtually. So it wasn't for us such a difficult decision to make. And the critical point I'm trying to make here as well is that online conferences, just like offline conferences, should be about one thing, networking. The speakers are, are absolutely the kind of the hook or the excuse. And there's always talks everybody at any conference will go to see. And of course, as a conference organizer, we part of us would like people to fill every seat at all times for the two or three days that we beautifully curate all these incredible speakers. But the truth is, the speakers are the excuse, and many of the speakers recognize that, and I can come back to it. But really, everybody's there 
including the speakers, to network with, with mm -hmm. each other. At least I think that's the primary purpose of these events. And from our point of view, we could do that online and we'll do that for Collision in about a month's time, entirely on our own platform. We won't use Zoom or a Google Hangout or, or anything else. We'll use entirely our own platform that has video conferencing as a feature within it. Uh, but more importantly, the mechanics that enable people to interact and have these small world interactions, structured interactions, where you might search for particular types of people you want to meet, and then you try and arrange to meet them at a certain time. But also the, the raw serendipity can exist online. I mean, so you're, in, you're you're selling me on the 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 network component of it, and we can we can talk about how you make that happen. I'm really curious as someone who does conferences, but I just want to push a little bit more about sort of the decision to say this is probably going to cost a lot of revenue that we were planning on booking, or maybe it doesn't. Um, I'm assuming it it affects how you staff something, and I'm assuming it affects the rest of your business. Is Lisbon still on the books for this fall? Yeah, I mean Lisbon. Similar to Lisbon is because we do it in such close partnership with the government of Portugal is ultimately a decision of the government of, of Portugal. And while Germany has already switched back on large events, IFA will take place in Berlin in September. As of now, the answer to that question is with the government of Portugal. And whatever the case, whether it's offline or online, we can do it. I'd be very excited about doing it uh, online. I think it allows you to scale participation. We're constrained in Lisbon. We can only do 70,000 people for the last two years. We're waiting for them to build a convention center twice the size so we yeah. can expand again. But online, it's limitless. There's no issue bringing 200,000 people together. And um, in many ways, it's more efficient because you can connect the right people to the right people faster online than you can over a, you know, a one and a half kilometer campus. It's an amazing, you know, it's like, hey, let's go for a coffee. Where are you? Oh, I'm in hall A. Where are you? I'm in hall Z. But you're thinking of this as a pause on in-person events that will eventually return. You still believe the future of your business is getting tens of thousands of people together in a place over X number of days and having them interact. I think it's both. Personally, I think there's a huge opportunity in January, we invested in a startup that does virtual conferences uh, called Hopin. And they're like Clubhouse, one of the the, the hottest startups. Uh -huh. And this was this is just their seed round. And they'll probably, I, I mean, I can't say for sure, but they'll do a gigantic seed round or series A in the coming weeks. And I think Hopin's very interesting because I do think virtual conferences it's a massive sector. When you think about business events alone, they generate about two and a half trillion of sales a year. Not even all music sales, the entire music industry globally is a $20 billion industry. Business events is this gigantic sector of the economy that's never really been cracked, hasn't really ever been serviced properly. And I, I do think Hopin is going to, or somebody like Hopin, but hopefully Hopin, are going to eat an enormous amount of that long tail and provide for hybrid events or entirely online events. And, and for us, at the moment, our software will power all of our own events online. And, you know, maybe in time, like Pixar opening up RenderMan to James Cameron, you know, people that run maybe blockbuster events, like make, want to make blockbuster movies, you could possibly use our software, but our software is a pretty heavy piece of machinery, whereas Hopin is fantastic. It's super lightweight. It's like, if you're, if you're into video, it's, it's like Adobe After Effects. It's 24 bucks a month, and you, you can add a nice filter to your, um, to your homemade movie for your YouTube channel. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the conference business, like I've said a couple of times, and I'm really thinking... And I attend conferences and go to events, um, it's a big part of my job. And there's always some sort of question about, do I need to go? Is it worth my time? Is it worth my company's time and money to send me there? Is it a boondoggle? Am I, is it just an excuse for me to go to a luxury hotel? And I always say, no, it's totally worth it. But I, I think a lot about asking someone as an organizer to spend a bunch of money and spend their time and, and trying to create value there. And at a minimum, I think, you know, regardless of how the pandemic plays out, there's going to be, you know, there's lots of stories about in the future, everything will be different and, and these things will change and the office will be radically different. It seems like making the decision not to send someone to a conference, not to pay to get on a plane, not to take three days that you could be doing something else. That's a pretty easy adjustment for a lot of people to make, to not make that trip. And you're telling me, look, we can solve this with software. 
maybe uh you have to get a lot more people charge them a lot less and then you still have to deliver that thing right because even if the money's a lot less right if i'm spending an, a, a day at your event in a chat room or whatever i'm doing I need to understand that I'm going to get the value I would have out of meeting, bumping, planning on meeting someone in a hallway or bumping into someone in a hallway and exchanging a card or whatever one does. So how do you replicate or how do you give me that value? Regardless of whether, regardless of the time or money I'm spending, how do you, how do you convince me that it's worth my time to hang out online for a day? Well, first of all, I think you have to demonstrate that and uh, hopefully at Collision, we do a little bit of that. But secondly, I don't think you can ever fully replicate online the experience of meeting face-to-face. If anything, this period of the world being disconnected, including disconnected from our families, has just, if anything, made us value connecting in the real world more. Yes. You know, I'd say there's, I, I mean, I could be wrong. I, you know, I am, I'm not, I, I don't own any, I don't hold any stock in uh, Zoom, but uh, the world is suffering a little bit from Zoom fatigue. And as soon as I'm allowed to interact with my parents again, I'm probably going to spend more time with them than I did in the previous five years. I can't speak for everyone. Will events suffer? In the long term, maybe. Uh, will online events ever replicate the magic of offline events? You know, you've been to some of our events. Going on a pub crawl with Bono through the streets of Dublin is a is is a hard experience to replicate in a virtual yeah. chat room. I'm afraid. I didn't do that one, but you guys like commandeered a whole rail car at one point and sent me and a bunch of guys to a, a distillery in Cork. It was fantastic. Yeah, that, that that train became subject to a national state inquiry. Actually, I, 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 I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. It was actually amazing. The, the train was a vintage train, and we had the, we had the founder of Lime. I was sitting beside him on the train, and he got on the train, and he was he's Japanese. Lime is like the WhatsApp of of Japan, I guess. It's still the, the most important messaging platform, and through parts of Asia as well. And he was blown away by how old the train was. He'd never seen anything like it. And then there were some Californians on the train and they were like, this is a vintage train. This is this is definitely newer than the Caltrain. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was a kind of it was it was it was surreal. Replacing those experiences, I think, are I think are incredibly hard. A moment ago you talked about events being boondongle, boon whatever the word is. Boondoggle. Boondoggle fun. Um or valuable. And I, I think the answer to that is they're actually both. It's nice to yep. stay in a nice hotel. It's nice to enjoy a meal with peers or friends or new uh, and make new friends. Uh, and hopefully there's some value. You know, the best events are both. The best events are great fun uh, and great things, great stories or great customers emerge out of uh, out of that process. And that's our job. Our job over the last 10 years has been to manufacture that uh, in some way. Oftentimes event organizers just put people in a room and they let serendipity take hold. Uh, and in our case, I think you can engineer some of those outcomes ever so slightly uh, in the background, sometimes by putting software in attendees and speakers' hands that suggest to them people they should meet and vice versa, setting up meetings for people ahead of time that they don't quite know why they're doing these meetings, but we know a lot more about you and who you should meet and who's there. And so we do that, figuring out who should be at your dinner table, maybe even sitting beside you. Uh, and then, you know, peering into your activity on the app over the three days, seeing, you know, where your badge is being scanned at what parties and what booths you're visiting. And we build up a uh, hopefully a good picture of what you're doing and what another 70,000 people are doing. And then, you know, figure out who should AWS follow up with or vice versa. And, th- and that seems to have worked for us anyway, as these kind of obscure outsiders. We're not a media company. We're not a trade association, which makes us kind of an anomaly. We're a group of initially kids from Dublin who, you know, were applying software to conferences. And it's it seems to have worked, but that doesn't mean the other ways don't work. I mean, if you to take the example again of Pixar, you know, Pixar make animated movies using software, but some people still make animated movies using traditional methods and they're fantastic and they still win Oscars. So there's there's many ways to organize a conference just like there's many ways to create a beautiful animated movie. Uh, Patty, you've been talking about your software incessantly for the last mm. 15 minutes. So let's dive into how you run a virtual conference. I'm doing a couple things, disclosure, uh, for your upcoming event. I'm interviewing the CEO of Roku, interviewing the CEO of the South China Morning Post. Those are the kind of things that people would eventually file into a hall and see. How will they watch or engage in that content? 
Well, they'll be able to watch it at a scheduled time online. It, it will The content will be ephemeral. It, it, it'll so, pop up. Okay, so you can't go yeah. ahead and download it in advance. Yeah, so you can go and tune in at the at the time in question, and the ephemerality of it will hopefully draw into the room similar-minded people to you that we will highlight in a kind of what might be called a probabilistically weighted kind of order, and then hopefully that'll spark some connections. So that's sort of a chat component while I'm yeah, talking but I'm, with you, Anthony you know, Wood. Yeah, I'm like, okay, yeah. having a Twitch-like interface is kind of, is, is, is great, but then across the platform, there are other ways to interact with people, one-on-ones that we can, you can just drop into a flow and we'll start randomly introducing you to people for two or three minutes uh, and you'll see the ticker and next person comes in, next person comes in. Uh, and hopefully some of those random introductions may lead somewhere. You could join a roundtable, uh, which will be pre-scheduled. So at certain times you might join peers, other journalists, for example. Um, so the way our events work, they're, they're grouped by kind of industry or theme. So a lot of people are there to meet peers. Some people are there to try and find customers who may look a little bit uh, different to them. Uh, and then we'll have kind of lounges, I guess, like Clubhouse, just where people can drop in and have casual conversations. And maybe Shaq or Paris Hilton or Peter Kafka will organize a lounge. And, and it's some combination of software and you guys sort of actually sort of manipulating, all right, Peter, you go into this room over here. I want to connect you with so-and-so over here. It's not me just sort of looking at a menu of places. I mean, I'm sure I can do that. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. You, you'll poke around and you know, get bored, uh, maybe stumble upon some interesting people, and hopefully that'll happen times 30,000 other people across the platform. And, you know, it won't be without its software, um, whilst, you know, 90% of the features have existed a, for a number of years and are quite stable, a couple of the features, I, I, I fully expect them to be buggy. So we'll have You've our own... new features and you haven't run it at this scale before. Yeah, yeah. So there'll be, you know, for example, we don't switch... Vi- we've had video uh, conferencing for quite a while, but we've just actually never switched it on for our events because we want people to meet face-to-face. So they use our, our mobile and web apps to find people live either during the conference or in advance, but we don't want them video conferencing each other. But now that they can't be in the same place, well, they're going to have to video conference each other. So the video conferencing piece, I'm interested to see how that holds up against an immense amount of weight uh, during the three days. So if it doesn't take down the entire experience, because previously when the software ever stopped working, which was infrequently in the last few years during the event, it didn't really matter because you just said, oh, I'm at this talk. I'll just keep watching this talk. I'll check the app in five minutes. Maybe it'll work again. But if if the web app goes down during uh, there's collision, no conference. there's no conference. So yeah. let's hope it uh, it stays up. And, and just in terms of running that business, right? You, anyone who paid you for a ticket for collision gets to go online for free. And they're also, the, but the real ticket goes kick forward to next year when you hopefully can restart. You're still selling a la carte tickets for this event. I went online this morning. I think you charged me a hundred bucks if I wanted to uh, come to Collision. Yeah. Has we, anyone bought the pure online uh, ticket yet? Yeah, yeah. Lots of yeah. people. Um, uh, I, I say never enough. A couple of hundred uh-huh. people bought tickets yesterday and I can actually check. Um, and I, you know, I think that's good. We we initially, when we announced that it was going online only, anybody who wanted a refund whatsoever could just uh, could just take one, and uh, you know, we just offered full refunds, and I think that's fair. And anybody that has a full ticket for the uh, for the offline version that comes to the online version, Collision from Home, and you know, isn't satisfied uh, with their transfer to 2021 and their free kind of online version, they can they you know they can still get a refund if they want. So we're relatively confident that the experience should be somewhat better than what's out there uh, at the moment. But, t- you know, time will tell. You never know. Some people might be dissatisfied. So 260 brave souls bought tickets yesterday. I don't know what they're doing. Not bad. You'll take that's it. A, that's okay. Yeah, well, they're only 100 they're not bucks. Bots. They're, they're 100 bucks, so they're not that expensive. Uh, listen, well, yeah, but we're in a world where 100 bucks is a lot more meaningful than it was three months ago. Uh, if you're being furloughed or, or laid off or worse. We should talk about how you got into this business. Um, like you said, this is not an outgrowth of, of a big media company or a tech company. How did you decide you wanted to become a, a events entrepreneur? Yeah, sort of by chance. I had a kind of crappy startup with a friend of mine called Ushin Hanrahan, who 
uh, after we sold it for pretty much next to nothing. He went away and worked for Excel, which is a very famous and storied VC firm. I decided I'd invite some far better entrepreneurs to come to Dublin to talk to other scrappy entrepreneurs like me. Uh, and that turned into the first conference. As I was organizing it, I'd never organized a tech conference before. I just thought, well, all of our speakers and some of our attendees are going to be here for kind of two days. We're going to go for a few dinners. We're going to pub crawl. We'll do a sit down lunch uh, and some other activities. I should probably figure out, people call it algorithmically, how to optimally distribute or randomize uh, the groups so that people meet as many people as possible and overlap as infrequently within, say, this group of 150 people. And that kind of became the, the genesis. And out of that, we built more and more little things. I mean, these are just scripts, basically, for figuring out who should be at what dinner table and then building in some constraints. You didn't want a dinner table of just investors or, or a dinner table of just startups and you should have some gender uh, mix, et cetera. So you, you build in some constraints and out pops uh, how you should distribute these 150 people over these five or six moments over the course of two days. And that became the, the start of it. And then we just constantly built almost uh, on that basis. And for whatever reason, at the time, I wasn't explaining to people how we chose seating arrangements or what pub crawl group you were in, but people would leave going, oh, I met so many interesting people. I think there's a tendency at all conferences that people congregate quite naturally to people that they already know. Uh, right. and and sometimes they want that, right? I'm, I will meet you at this conference. That's where I see you once a year. Oh, 100%. And then part of our job a little bit is to, you'll find those people anyway, whether it's late at night in the hotel lobby or first thing for a coffee. Our job is, can we just get you a few extra interesting uh, connections? Uh, and can we do that initially times 100 people, which was computationally easy. Uh, but what, what about at the scale of 70,000 people? It's very easy to figure out, oh, we've got Bill Owens, the executive producer of 60 Minutes. Who should Bill meet? Well, you don't need an algorithm to do that. You just like, you just need to sit down with, I work, with, I have a, the privilege of working with many former journalists who, who now work at, at, at WebSum and we kind of figure out, you know, who should Peter Kafka or who should Bill Owens, he, who's running 60 Minutes uh, meet. And, um, but then scaling it out across the other, say, 69 and a half thousand attendees, some of whom are just starting out as entrepreneurs, a 23-year-old gaming entrepreneur from Croatia. Okay, how do you figure out who this person should meet. Well, that's that's a little bit more complicated. And six years ago, I was able to attract a bunch of uh, academic physicists from several universities around the world uh, whose focus was some uh, field called complex systems. Uh, and they've been here ever since working on resolving some of those problems that it turns out are, are actually quite uh, interesting to figure out how you, in, in, in a sense, act as the invisible hand uh, behind the scenes and nudge certain people to each other without overtly doing it because you just kind of, you want to, you want to make investors feel like the 10 meetings that they've ended up with is because of their great foresight uh, and selection abilities. Um, but, you know, that's partly true, but we do, a, we do a lot of work in the background to try and make, um, make those outcomes much better. So if you, if you track the startups that have been at Web Summit in collision over since they've come into existence, you know, more than a, a hundred billion has been invested into uh, those startups. Um, and many of that, much of that has occurred after within a year of attending uh, Web Summit or Collision by investors that also happen to be at the events, many of them investing for the very first time. Uh, and some of that is by figuring out, uh, and I, like I've never talked about this before, but let me just talk about how one one way we Daddy, do it. I cannot stop you. You're still going. Go. And this 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 may completely change the behavior of investors at our event. So we ask at Web Summit more than a thousand five hundred investors to rank the twenty startups. We first of all search the world and we take recommendations from investors and entrepreneurs and startup supply. So we run a selection process and we find all these incredible startups around the world. They create mini decks, they upload them onto our platform, and then we allow investors search for weeks uh, for the startups they really want to meet. And they give us back a ranked list of startups, uh, one through 20. Some of the bigger firms can make 50, 60 requests. And then we take back all of those 
kind of preferential lists, uh, you know, 20, 30,000 of these data points. And out of that, we can begin to figure out, hey, there's five extra startups NEA should meet. Actually, Benchmark maybe should meet these and startups And this is really well. what you're selling, right? You're selling the investors the idea that they're going to meet startups sort of gathered together in one place that they would have to go seek out otherwise. And, and, and on the other end, you're telling the startups they may have a chance to meet an investor. They may have a chance to meet a Peter Kafka or less effectively a... a yeah, um, but it's still, my it's, joke. It's, but, but it's, your, your, it's still very hard because you're panning for gold. So to, when you're yeah. panning for gold as a, as a journalist in the sector or as an investor, you got to wade through a lot of mud to find those specs of Yeah, of, of it's always gold. the thing that may be a little uncomfortable, frankly, at, at, at your event. And I know the other events work this way as well, is when you get into the hall and you see these people with their booths and there's these tiny little booths and they printed out a piece of paper that says e-commerce company or whatever it is. And like, Man, that is going to be tough to have a meaningful conversation if you're standing there and waiting for an investor to to walk by and go, "What is this e-commerce company?" But that's that's the challenge. You would be successful no matter what you did. I think you were a charming hustler. I mean this in the best possible way. It also strikes me that you were fortunate to do this in Europe, 2009, 2010, when there really wasn't anything at this scale. Uh, I was really struck when I did come to your events that sort of it seemed to have sucked up most of Europe there. There just wasn't another, you know, there are other, there are events like this in the U.S. There really wasn't anything like that in Europe. Did you know that going in or did it sort of occur to you as it was growing that you didn't really have competition and you were benefiting from that? No, I, I really think there, the, the, there was competition. Um, in some ways, the events all events in ways are complementary. I mean, when you own a watch, you can only have really one watch on your wrist. At least that's the case for almost everybody. But uh, you, can, you can go to a conference in January and there's, you know, there's lots of room left in the rest of the year to go to another conference. So many people that go to Recode will go to TED, will go to the World yeah. Economic Forum and, you know, God hoping, willing, they go to Web Summit as well. Um, and... In our case, there were Loic Lemoore was running Le Web, which was incredible. There was an amazing event in Finland called Slush at the time. Next Web had an event. Uh, DLD was running in Munich. And so from our position at the time, uh, Europe had a, not as much competition as the United States. That's correct. But there was definitely some you know, really good events uh, across the continent. Maybe nothing at, at the scale that Web Summit became, but there were definitely very interesting events. And um but maybe not as yeah, maybe not as competitive as the United States. Um, the United States, and also really fierce. fortunate to to have this in Dublin, which is a really fun place to visit. But you have had problems with your with your native country. You've 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 been in brawls with them occasionally. I, I think when you left, it was uh, contentious, and when you went to Lisbon, it was contentious. And then I was googling in advance of this uh, conversation, and and there's a bunch of tweets from you. You're very angry at Ireland over over the pandemic. And I think you were asked to take something down off Twitter. Is that, is that correct? Is Google correct um, there? Oh, Google's always correct. And It um, seems like you've got a love-hate with, with your native country. Can you explain what's going on? Um, no, I think I'm, I'm very uh, passionate um, about the right thing being done. And about two months ago, I, I've quite a number of friends working as doctors uh, and nurses, and they were raising the alarm with me that there were PPE shortages, but officially there were no PPE shortages. In fact, the official line was we had six months worth of stocks, but I had serious doctors telling me this was a major problem and they were being effectively kind of gagged. And so I started tweeting about that. I first contacted the prime minister's office to say, look, I think there's a really impending PPE shortage here. And, you and you're know, not so. a random dude in Ireland. You're not, you're not, well, we're, not we're, we're, all, we're, we're all citizens, uh, yeah. you know, with one vote um, in theory. But um, so after not getting very far, I just started kind of tweeting about it. And then the health authorities reacted and kind of came out and said, look, there, you know, there is a problem. I contacted um, Joe Sai and Jack Ma, the founders of Alibaba, to see if they'd send some aid to Ireland, which they very kindly agreed to do, um, the chairman of Huawei and others. And then there were some other issues with nursing homes that I put out into the public domain. I think in my case, I have the freedom to be able to do that. If you're a nurse or a doctor, almost anywhere in the Western world at the moment, it's very hard to you know, to draw attention to this because yes. this is your livelihood and life can be made difficult for you. But But for me... There's really no consequences except for people giving out to giving out about me in the uh, uh, in the press, and um, 
yeah, those were just some some issues. There were some contracting issues, and I, I flagged. I got a copy of a contract negotiated with um, some private hospital groups in Ireland that seemed to me to be somewhat rushed and ill thought out. So I put that into the public domain as well, which then forced the government to release it uh, to um, opposition politicians, and that's led to, I think, improved transparency and a fair debate against uh, about a very large contract that should have otherwise been up for public discussion, but just wasn't. You're what we call in this country a shit stir, uh, which muck, is also, muck, a, sounds like a compliment. Muckraker, muckraker yeah, is, uh, well. is the term possibly, yeah. So entrepreneur, muckraker, shit stir, hustler. Um, ticket salesman. Ticket salesman, event organizer. Uh, you've wrangled me into working with you for free. So congratulations. That'll be late June. Um, you can catch me ephemerally at Collision. And then the Lisbon event is technically not canceled for this year. It, well, one way or another, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Uh, it's going to happen. It's going to happen in person or not. And yeah. Crystal Ball, when do you think with confidence you can say we are back to doing big, large-scale events in person? We've been operating since we shut the office. We're very transparent with staff that we were working on a, what we call a prudent or conservative timeline that it wouldn't be until the second half of 2021. And um, I mean, that seems maybe even optimistic. At, uh, you know, at this point, that being said, China, South Korea, Germany are all opening up again to uh, yep. to events. And the world does move very fast as we're seeing with Danish restaurants, the pictures in Denmark and some of the Eastern European countries. It's, it's just incredible. It's like normality has resumed almost overnight. Or so Atlanta. Maybe, Atlanta. Maybe we move a little. Maybe we move a little bit faster uh, than than our conservative uh, timeline. I, I can't wait to get back. I love going to conferences. By the way, I'm like a chef that loves eating in other people's uh, restaurants. I think that's that's a thing, uh, and I love going to other people's events. And I I hope you'll have me um, at Recode in the in the near future. We, we'd love to. It's much better to go to someone's event than have to organize one. It's bliss. It's bliss. I love it. Yes. Uh, I look forward to attending a Patty joint down the road. Patty, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks again for Patty Cosgrave and good luck at Collision this month. We're going to hear briefly from a sponsor. Hang on. We'll be right back. And we're back. And now here's my conversation with Rafat Ali. Rafat is a really interesting entrepreneur. I think you will enjoy this conversation. Here's Rafat. Hey, Rafat. How are you? Nice to see you again. Good to see you too, Peter. Last time was in person. This time, of course... Well, we're still in New York. That's good. You're in Queens. I'm in Brooklyn. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, uh, Brooklyn might be a whole different city at this point, which has always been a very different city from the rest of the city. Every block is different. Uh, if you guys are hardcore Recode Media fans, and several of you are, you remember that we talked to Rafat, I think, four years ago. Yeah. He is the uh, founder of paidcontent.org, and more relevant to this conversation today, he is the founder and operator of Skift. Uh, I think of it as a travel site, but that's always the wrong way to describe it. You guys cover the travel industry for the travel industry. Am I summing that up correctly? Correct. Yeah. Business media and intelligence for the global travel sector. So you are running a media organization during a pandemic. You have a, a business model which relies in large part on live events. Um, so that's a problem. And you're covering the travel industry, which may be hurt more than any other industry right now during the pandemic. So the short question is, how's it going? It's the best of times, Peter. It really is. Um, so uh, I would not say the in large part events. So 40% of our business is events. I would say it's certainly the largest equivalent part would be advertising. So both, obviously, advertising is extremely hurt and events is, is, is shut. Travel is, as you said, the most hurt sector out of all sectors in the, in the planet. I think restaurants at least have some business um, in many parts of the world. And so, you know, for us, March and April were what it is worse for everybody in the travel industry. We lost 80% of our revenues in March and April and May, you know, we're just crawling back a little bit. And we're seeing some green shoots as we sit here towards the end of May, I suppose. And we're beginning to see some green shoots both in the travel industry and obviously our business as well. But we pivoted quickly. I mean, you know, look, we, you know, first half of March was spent in like a fetal position. And then you sort of come out of that, then you learn to, you know, crawl again. And I think that's, we pivoted quickly from physical events to online events. 
much like everybody else, we just were a little early only because we saw it coming and travel from as soon as China started hitting end of Jan. We didn't realize it was going to be a global pandemic by any imagine, you know, by any stretch of imagination. But we did a hiring freeze early in Feb. We were about 60 plus people then. We were hiring about six people. For us, that's, you know, we're, that's a lot of people that we were hiring. Yeah. For, for a huge growth, 2020 was going to be 40% revenue growth year for us, year nine. Before we talk about what you did, I want to just set the table and, and give people context about uh, the size of your organization, where the money comes from. You you made some money selling uh, paid content to The Guardian. You raised some money from angels. We talked a lot about this four years ago. I think at one point you thought this was going to be a sort of traditionally VC-backed company. Right. And in the end, you you stopped going to VCs for money. So prior to the pandemic, prior to, they stopped coming yeah, to us. To they stopped coming money. to you, and and you sort of sort of realized, look, we are a trade publication. We can be a profitable business. Um, we are not going to produce TEDx results that a VC wants. We are going to have to hire human beings to make content. Um, we're not going to attach ourselves to Facebook. We're not doing any of the things that made media companies attractive to uh, venture capitals, especially four years ago. Um, so you've raised some money, um, but it's not like you've got a, a huge cash reserve. Were you profitable prior to the beginning of this year? Uh, we have been between profitable to break even over the, since 2015. So one year is profitable, one year is, and you know, we're not hugely profitable, certainly by any stretch of imagination. The focus was let's push on, um, you know, continuing to grow the company as much as we can in an organic fashion. So you had a sustainable company or you're Correct. fighting to keep the company sustainable, which is a huge achievement uh, for any company, let alone a media company. Um, so you're, you're headed into the into 2020 and now we can talk about sort of, and let's just, again, give people a little more understanding of how big the company is. You said 60 people? Yeah, we've, uh, yeah, 60 people spread over New York, we, 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 we have an office in New York still, and we can talk about that. We just closed our office in London. We had a small eight-people office in London. We had hired uh, a bunch of people over 2019 there. And, and, the, and the business model is? Branded content, conferences, and, and, and subscriptions. So and subscription, and aimed at an audience of people who need to know what's in the going travel on. industry, right. so airlines and hotels and tech companies and destinations. And so very large, by many accounts, one of the world's largest industries. We've learned the size and the consequence of this industry. The consequentialness is that a word, uh, of this industry in the last few months, right? by the world yep. being stopped. So, yeah, I mean, in many ways, our value has been validated 10 times over in the last three months. And and the, uh, you guys really did make a name for yourself, right? Whenever I saw uh, coverage Correct. of your conferences, you had the CEOs of major airlines there, the guys who run Expedia, the folks from Airbnb, everyone everyone in your business paid attention to you. Yeah, very much. I mean, my, look, my life has been spent by being an impact entrepreneur. So go pick a sector, go deep into it, never... Uh, aimed for uh, a mainstream media ambitions in that sense. Larger impact, yes. I think paid content had its larger impact in how media sort of shaped uh, from then, or at least the people who were building media shaped um, was shaped to, to some extent by paid content's work. And then I think Skift in many ways has brought a new light to the travel industry in terms of how we cover it, how the intensity with which we cover it. I think I'll use the word intensity and metabolism, particularly over the last three months, and to describe what we've done. So you guys see there's trouble in January earlier than probably other businesses did because you because Chinese this Because we cover Chinese travelers. Chinese travelers are the world's biggest global force in travel. Any micro-movements on changes of those are followed by everybody, including us, very, very closely. And so as soon as China started closing up and internally started closing up. Internal Chinese travel is huge. And did you think, oh, this is going to be a big news story and it's going to hurt our business or this is just a huge news story? Huge news story is going to hurt our Asian business. So we had a conference in Singapore early June, physical conference. We did our first conference in Singapore last year. It was a huge success. This year we actually did it for two days. We had a one-day conference last year and big ambitions. Um, we, we we had four people in Singapore uh, area. And so we moved that quickly to uh, end of October, early Feb. Early Feb, we, we moved it to October. That's not going to happen either this year. Um, 
or at least doesn't seem like it will happen this year. But we moved early on that. We did a hiring freeze. I started cutting. We started looking at expenses in terms of freelancers, everything. Because this thing happening in Asia is going to affect our business. Um, we're we're going to have to slow down. Correct. And then when did when did you realize, oh, no, this we're, we're in a lot of trouble? Yeah, uh, was it the I same think, time as everyone else, sort of late February, early March? Or? Yeah, I would say late Feb is when we started to... To do that, I had to, you know, I remember explaining first a hiring freeze to our team and like worrying about shit, how's it going to come across? Uh, obviously, it was going to get a lot worse after, but, mm-hmm. um, and uh, for us, it hit us in Q1, which also happens to be our slowest quarter. Q2, Q3, Q4 tend to be our, our biggest um, quarters in general, Q2, Q3, and, and a lot of it at Cruise and Crew 4. And so, you know, from a cash flow perspective, we were we were not great at all, and so we had to do all the decisions that you would imagine anybody would do. Cut cut everything we could before we come to our team, and you know, I've not hidden our pain at all um, through you know through social media, etc. But that's really been the pain, and it's not us; it's it's the travel industry itself and the world. Well, initially it was, oh, we're doing this because travel industry. And then it became, oh, it's the world. It's not just the travel industry. Right. And so let's talk about the things that, that you cut once we, we, you got to staff eventually, right? You furloughed some employees. We and furloughed I think now and have then st- eventually we, uh, we, had to, uh, we had to let them go. And you were mentioning your office space. Uh, you're moving. You're, I guess you're going to let your lease lapse in New yeah, York City. So we got, you know, we were, we, they were lucky. We were lucky in a few things. I don't know if it was luck, but certainly we, we, we got some breaks. The breaks was we had enough money in AR, which is receivables that we had. And we knew we were going to drop a bunch of those. Some people will renege on their agreements. Right. People are supposed to pay you and some aren't. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we factored all of that in. Luckily, because we talked, you know, our advertisers are a lot of big companies in travel. It's less than you would imagine. And we talked directly to Companies, we don't go through the ad agencies because that's the nature of what we do. So you're, you're talking to, uh, let's say, Expedia. A core, um, so, and we're able to either move some of their business into second half of the year or into 2021. So the right. money... We, we, know, we know you're not going to go away. Eventually, you're going to want to spend money again. Correct. We understand you don't want to spend it now. Just delay this till later in the year, till next year. Yeah, and we have refunded money. But it's been a surprisingly small part. Like if you asked me early March, in my one of my weak moments, I would have said, "Fuck, this is over." So you you you, you sort of shore up whatever you can. At some point, are you looking at whether or not the business can exist, or did you always think, "Look, it's going to work. We just it's a matter of scale." No, I, I I've admitted it. Uh, in my weak moments, I was worried about whether we will survive or not. This was. Early March, I've gone and I went through bad, you know, bad, dark days in March, for sure. I, this is not, I'm sure this is not just me, but I'm sure a lot of other entrepreneurs have gone through that. But, you know, I've always had a list of trusted people that I would call and say, our company's going under here, soft landing, save my people's jobs. So certainly uh, that thought has crossed my mind. So did did you, I was that was going to be my next question? Did you reach out to people about selling the business, about a combination, no. about some sort of look? No. This isn't what I want, but it'll keep it'll keep people employed. No, uh, I didn't. No, I didn't reach out. Well, short of reaching out, I imagined all all of these mm-hmm. things in my head. So one of the things I avoided doing. So we have an existing set of investors, as you mentioned. We've raised about three million through our lifetime. The first instinct was and should have been to reach out to those investors and say, hey, I need some money to shore up the business. But I didn't do it. Because? Because it was going to be desperation. There was no, no, no rational move that could have come out of desperation. And I kept resisting it. Maybe it was, you know, part of it was laziness uh, because I was so busy with the rest of the company. Mm-hmm. But I didn't reach out. And so I'm glad that in hindsight... If I need it in the next few months, I'll be in a much stronger, at least there's more clarity to it. Meaning I know this, I know this is how much I need. These are terms that I think would be acceptable uh, as opposed to just like, I'll take whatever, just give me some money. Yeah, and many of our investors have reached out. They've been 
great through the whole process. I've kept them updated. I send a investor update two weeks ago, maybe, with the subject line, the cockroach media startup that refuses to die. That was the actual subject line of that. And so, you know, we have reforecasted our revenues at least twice in the last few months, because initially we reforecasted saying physical events could happen in second half of the year. I'm sure that's right. a lot of media companies were thinking that. Yep. And then we realized, no, they're not going to happen. Or New York City, where most of our events are, there's no freaking way a small company like ours can manage to do a physical event with the mm -hmm. overheads that are required and all the social distancing and et cetera, et cetera, required in New York City. I have revised it a tiny bit in my head. Not, it's not reflected in our reforecasting, but I'm holding out a tiny hope that in December, early December, I can probably do a small physical conference at a convened type space in New York if I wanted to. That'll be newsworthy. If you're able to do <laughs> if that. If we're able to, yeah, we'll see. Someone's going to pull the trigger and have the first conference in, in New York. Uh, it could be you. So um, I, I want to talk about your real estate. Maybe we'll save that for a little later, but but you were able to cut some costs there. But eventually you have to turn to your staff and say, we're going to furlough some of you. And then eventually you have to turn to them and say, actually, you're not coming back. How have you communicated with your staff when you don't know what's going on, when you're despairing for the future of the company? Uh, and finding ways to be transparent and candid with them without them freaking out yeah. more than they should yeah. freak out. That's the hardest, hardest question to answer because we just don't have an answer to it. We first went to our team with, here's where the world is. Here's what's happening with the business. This is early March. This is, by the way, all in video. You can imagine, this is not face-to-face. Mm -hmm. -face. This is, at this point, we're, we're sitting at our homes. We're, we're doing it through Zoom. Yep. So it becomes even harder. And vol so we start with voluntary. So voluntarily, we're making a list. We have to do furloughs, but I want to start with voluntary. So including the, 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 our team was the most important, was in hindsight the best thing that we did. Saying, would, would any of, does anyone want to raise their hand and take a furlough? Either, you know, one day, two day furloughs a week, et cetera, et cetera. Even some full furloughs if anybody uh -huh. wants to do that. Or salary cuts. And a, a great, a, a very good portion of people raised their hands in many different ways. Ultimately, everybody gave some sort of sacrifice of some sort. Everybody did. What kind of candor are you able to offer in advance in terms of here's the state of the company? Are you showing them a PL? Are you saying this is how much cash we have left? Or not that granular? No, not that granular. Because you don't want to cause panic. So you were saying things are very bad, but if we showed you the full picture, you'd freak the fuck out and, and be like the scene from Airplane where everyone's running, running off the plane. Yeah, I think you have to balance your own, you know, it's me and my CFO and Jason, my co-founder, and Carolyn, our president, really the four of us who probably, you know, know the exact, well, it's actually really me and Michael who know the exact cash minute by minute in the bank. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's, you have to be transparent about intent, not about second by second. And I think that's, that's how we, we, we approached it. But even with these voluntary partial furloughs or full furloughs, it was still not going to be enough. Well, it still didn't add up to be enough. We just added it up. It just wasn't going to be enough for us to figure out. At that point, the visibility was, let's get to July. Forget like end of the year. Let's get to July. And we were unsure of what the accounts receivable situation was going to be. Was anybody going to pay? In March, early March, by early March or mid-March, travel companies were just in absolute blind panic, as you know. So we were able to make up a list of furloughs, and we did end up furloughing one-third of our, of our companies, about 20 people. And when you're making a decision to, to put people on furlough, is that how are you balancing this person makes this much money? and not paying them will save us this much money versus this person does work that's crucial or we're going to need them in December. How do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, there's no right answer to that. It's a mix of both. It can't just be the most junior people because that's not going to save enough money. It can't be the, all the senior people because that's all saving money, but nobody left to run the company. 
So it has to be a mix of both. And crucialness of immediate work was probably the primary function. Like what is bare minimum needed to put out the newsletter, to answer the sales calls and, and you know, panic customers, to figure out the research is going, subscriptions is going, et cetera, et cetera. So crucialness of operation was the primary factor balanced with how much money can we save. And then when you decided that the people you'd furloughed aren't going to come back, is that that same decision tree? Like, or look, there's some people we furloughed, but we really, we, we got to keep them. Um, or does everyone, was everyone who furloughed eventually let go? We, we brought back a couple of folks out of those that had been with me for collectively at this point, 11 years. Have you gone through layoffs before? You've been, you've been building and running media businesses for we, a couple decades. Uh, we did a tiny, we let uh, three people go last year, in the middle of last year, when we were, uh, we expanded into the business of restaurants. It didn't work. And we, we shut that down. Three, three to four people we did at that point. And so you recently said um, that you're going to get rid of your New York uh, office. You guys are going to do remote work. Um, a lot of people are saying they're doing things like this. I don't think people have been as definitive as you are, uh, saying we're just done in New York where people are going to work from home or they can work other places. And there was a quote I saw in, in one of the pieces with you talking about this that really caught my eye, saying something to the effect of businesses are beginning to realize how I think you used the word lucky they are that this is or this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to sort of rethink their business, which both makes sense and I think for a lot of people they would find alarming. They're saying, oh, they're say they're doing this to cut costs, but actually they're saying they're getting rid of this part of the business. Um, that they're using the pandemic as an excuse to do something they wanted to do all along. I guess that's the better. Yeah, way I've of heard that it. argument, and I've heard I know Brian Morrissey from. Digiday, who you know well, has also said that in his columns, etc. But the reality is, what choice did we have? Mm -hmm. like the choice is to continue as we are or reset the business. And whether it is an excuse or not, it really is once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for media, digital media businesses with, with heavy personnel and even physical costs to reset the business. If we can't now, it's over. And so, well, if you remember, paid content was started in my bedroom. This is your uh, first so property, yeah. I, you know, my first company was virtual company for most of it. Even when we got an office in Santa Monica, I barely went in. Um, yeah, in my mind, I have a clear picture of you sweatily, angrily typing away in, in one bedroom flats in London and, for years. and in Santa yeah. Monica. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, this was pre even pre Skype. I remember when Skype launched. I remember on the Nokia phone, uh, the N95 phone. I, I guess there were no apps at that point. But anyway, we were we were skyping through our uh, our computers early days, and we were using the. I think Messenger had a voice function at that point, if I remember right, MSN Messenger. And so we were, Stacy and I, Stacy Kramer, who was my executive editor um, at that time, employee number one at paid content. She and I were basically doing it over IM and phone. And so fast forward 15 years, you know, it's so much easier to be a remote slash distributed company. For us, it was not a choice that we made, you know, the decision we had to make wasn't really a decision. It was, this is what we have to do to save money, to save the company. Right. You're not picking a path. You're walking down a tunnel and there's only one way to go. There's only the one way to go. So it, that made it, I suppose, easy to make that decision. It also makes it easier for the employees to know. Not all of them will like it, but at least they have, they know that, you know, a lot of companies I know are asking their employees, do you want to be, do you want to go remote? We, right. don't, we, we can't do that poll with our team. It's just a path we have to go. So, uh, you know, one of the things I do think that is important, and in fact, I heard on one of your Vox podcast, Kara Swisher was interviewing Adam Grant, and he's, he had the statistic about, there's some research that says if you're in office for two, at least two days a week, or you're able to meet physically two days a week, you're able to get the benefits of five days a week. And so I actually emailed, no, I, I, tw I tweeted at him, I don't know him. And asked, where, where did you find this research? I want to read it. So actually, he sent me the link. And so that gave me a thought of, if we can find a meeting space for a couple of days a week in New York, that we can meet. That we so you, you, work, you work at home, and then one, one or two days a week, everyone come to the same space that we're going to rent. 
yes, even though I've modified that as well since then, because if people move out of, I'm not like some people asked, oh, is our employment at Skift now dependent on us staying in New York? And the answer is no, because like if you're a remote company, you can be anywhere, right? And so some of our team, especially the younger people, will likely move out. They're already thinking of, and even you know, even I am, yeah, would like to at some point. You may be going back to the suburbs. Uh, thinking about an events business, everyone is trying a virtual event. We're all trying to figure out how to make it work. And I think we can say candidly that they're not as good as in-person events in no. most ways. The content can be great, but you just can't have that kind of networking. Um, this conversation we're having is going to be paired with one that Patty uh, Patty Cosgrave from uh, Web Summit is doing. Um, you know, and he's got he's got these conferences that bring tens of thousands of people. Correct. It's going to be very hard to very hard for him to to make that virtual. Um, I'm just wondering, as someone who runs a big part of your business is events requires in-person meetings. You're talking about having a sort of mostly virtual company. For the rest uh, of the Mostly remote year. company. For the, um, yes. How are you sort of balancing those two competing ideas? Yeah, so again, initially virtual, we just started experimenting. And you know, a few things you realize, again, as I mentioned, reset the cost base for the company or reset the company. At some point, you have to drop the word virtual from virtual events. They're just a new product that becomes part of your mix. Uh, they will not be the largest part. Physical events at some point will come back. There's no doubt in anybody's mind that at some point the crap that we're in is going to be over, um, however long it takes. Physical events will come back. They'll be different. I'm actually excited about physical, what shape a hybrid physical and virtual will look like. I think tech that we don't even know exists today will come in the next few years and we'll have a whole different paradigm of how we talk to each other, interact with each other, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Online summits, that's what we call our virtual events. Our, uh, what we figured out is in a good scenario, you're getting about one-fourth to one-third of the revenue of a one-day event. So if you're getting a million dollars for a one-day conference, you're get, in a good scenario, you're getting about 300-ish K from the event. Tickets plus sponsorships, sort of half and half. That's been our, our mix mm -hmm. of 50-50. Of the cost to produce a million-dollar event would be half a million dollars, maybe slightly more. So 50% gross margins. In a, in a virtual event on 300, my cost is whatever the hell I pay to Zoom or plus minus software. So that's in an expensive scenario is probably 50K spent. So that's so the best case scenario, and I get that logic. But that does require a sponsor to, to pay you something and requires attendees to today, pay you something. Today. And what is, the, what is the pitch over the next couple of years to someone saying, look, you used to come, you fly wherever, and you'd come here and meet. And I use the word boondoggle with, with Patty as well. Maybe it's a boondoggle. Maybe you're getting real value out of it because uh, you're meeting people in person. Since that's not going to happen, what's the new pitch? Instead of meeting someone in person yeah. for a physical event, what are, you, what are you getting out of attending and paying for this event? Yeah, I think for physical events, the networking and the, the networking element and the in-person business meetings element becomes more important. So online, it's all content slash editorial. In physical events, while we are very heavy on editorial in our physical events, we have to rethink that part and lean even more towards the matchmaking part of it. So we're going to spend less time on a stage talking or interviewing someone and more time connecting you with people you need to talk to. Correct. I don't know the answer to that, what, what that would look like today, because we were structured to be an editorial company in everything we do. Yeah, I know the feeling. So, uh, which, you know, may be different from Patty, because, you know, for them, matchmaking is a huge part, or some, some of that. So um, I do think that takes an important meaning. The other thing that I am excited about physical events, this is from an organizer perspective, that's not a pitch to the, to the attendees, but there are people that are going to meet in New York, for instance, we do, but people can join from anywhere, mm -hmm. right? So the audience 
online audience becomes a bigger part of the physical event that it ever historically had been. We had experimented with live streaming our previous conferences. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't, because people who were at the physical event got pissed off because like you're paying X number of dollars. Why are you streaming it for free? All of these. All of these things will come to a head in future. So um, so we will have to figure out a new pitch for our physical events when they do come back. That's a very good point. You talked about green shoots. I want to end this on, a, on an up note. If it's an artificial up note. What, what is the thing that is most promising to you now as you're looking out at the landscape and, and breathing a little bit easier than you did at the beginning of March? Yeah, I think as an operator, I think costs become more rational in all possible ways. Talent, venues, uh, you know, if you're an event business, when physical events do come back for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time in history, the event organizers have an upper hand on event venues. New York is famously arrogant, expensive venues. San Francisco, the same. It's even worse than New York. So green shoots there. Um, incredible stories to tell. I mean, we're journalists at the end of the day. I mean, this is... This is the best time to be an employed journalist. I, I use the word employed in there because you can tell great stories. I mean, the, for us in travel, this is the biggest story of our lifetimes. So that's the green shoots for us. And our, I think profitability becomes much better for us going ahead. We're a smaller company. We're going we're gonna to contract our, you know, our, our revenues are going to shrink by about 40% this year. Well, this is me sitting here in end of May saying that because the world could, is changing every mm-hmm. week and every month. But so far, our revenues from last year are going to shrink by about 40% is what we're forecasting. The company has also shrunk in that sense uh, for that. So I'm hopeful about one travel coming back, the importance of travel in the, in the world. So that's uh, focused on our sector. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful about the fundamentals getting better of businesses like ours and others. The fact that I can hire talent, we've been saying this for 25 years, we can hire anywhere, um, you can be anywhere. Finally, finally, that's a possibility. Time zone constraints still exist, by the way, time zone mm-hmm. constraints. But other than that, uh, it becomes pretty much an open world. I also, by the way, was thinking LinkedIn should redo their whole system based on how do you build a distributed company and hire um, I'm sure. bring in, I'll bring in Dan Roth next. We'll have that conversation. Yeah. Rafat, it was great to see you. I hope we get to see you in person in the nearish future. Maybe I could just do a drive-by. Yeah, we should do that. Drive-by okay. media, uh, media gathering. We'll figure it out. Good luck to you. Thanks for your time. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Rafat. Thanks again to Patty. Thanks again to Jelani and Joel who produce and edit this show. Thanks to you guys who are writing at me and tweeting me, telling me you like what I'm doing. I really appreciate it. You can go one step further. Tell other people you like the show, too. We always like that. Um, But we love to hear from you. Thanks again. Be well. Be safe. We'll see you soon.